we've been seeing in the minor prophets, uh, the fact that uh, God is the sovereign God over kings, over kingdoms, and nations. And we're reminded of that today as we think of the nation of Assyria, the first great world empire that stretched over much of the Middle East up into Turkey and then down into northern Egypt. And uh, it was the cause of the fall of the northern kingdom in the year 722. Um, The shadow was heavy over Judah itself, even though they tried to take uh, the city of Jerusalem. They were unable to do that. God miraculously intervened, and there were 185,000 soldiers that were killed by God himself through... um, some means, I forget what it was, but, but it was a supernatural intervention of God. And the city of Jerusalem was spared. Um, and as we see this king, uh, the various kings that uh, ruled in, in Assyria, they were very wicked, corrupt kings. Uh, they were merciless often to the, the ones that they took captive. I remember reading of one of the dignitaries that had been captured and brought back to the city of Nineveh. And I think it was Sennacherib uh, or else his grandson, Ashurbanipal, who um, had the, the uh, head of the king from where he was from. And he made this man wear that around his neck um, as he would go through the city of Nineveh. Um, so those are some of the things that they would do to humiliate um, those that they had overcome. As we come to Isaiah 10 here tonight, it is an amazing chapter. Uh, Isaiah, I think, was a little before the time of Nahum that we were looking at this morning, but Assyria was on the world stage uh, at that time. But we see the relationship between God and nations Lessons that were learned by King Nebuchadnezzar in the time of the Babylonian Empire, where we read this, that God rules in the kingdoms of men. What a helpful thing for us to come to understand that and to know that as believers. This, again, helps to shape our worldview, how we look at the world around us. And as we see things in our own day and see powerful men and kingdoms, um, it helps us to understand that over them, God rules in the kingdoms of men. This is not something you're going to hear on the news. CNN is not going to talk about this. Um, And this is something that, however, that is given to us in the word of God, the inspired word of God, that God is actively at work in our world, in ways that we might never have imagined left to ourself. He is no mere observer of world events. He is the sovereign Lord who is ruling and reigning even through these world events. Psalm 135, I love these verses. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven, And in earth, in the seas and all the deep places, he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasury. There are numerous displays of this whenever we are out in the world 
in nature. But it's not only the lightning and the rain and the wind that is in his hand and carrying out his purpose, but Proverbs tells us that even the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whichever way he wills. When I was a kid, we used to play a game called King of the Hill. I don't know if you guys used to do that, but you'd have a hill, and you would fight uh, to be the top dog. found out yesterday uh, Keith was calling the pastor of Lori's uh, church, her, his caregiver, he, he went into his office and, and they, he referred to him as uh, the, the big dog. He was the big dog. And uh, so that was a name that he had given to him, big dog. But anyway, we would play king of the mountain and, you know, you would fight to be on top and uh, you'd be pushing other people down and uh, the mightiest man uh, won. And as we think about our God, we might think, who is in control in this world in which we live? Who is the king of the hill? Well, the Bible clearly shows us that it is God himself. He's not in an arm wrestling contest with kings and kingdoms, powerful forces, uh, spiritual forces. He is the sovereign God who rules above. He is uncontested. Um, and this is one of the things that the Bible very clearly, I think, shows to us. And it is a weighty subject. There is mystery that's involved in this, as I think we see in this passage. But as we look at this passage, this is the nation, Assyria, that Isaiah is referring to, the Lord is referring to, uh, that, that was in control in the days of Nahum, the world leader of the day. And we see that Assyria is the rod in the hand of the Lord. In this section, God uh, uses Assyria to bring judgment on his own covenant people. Notice verse 5, woe to Assyria. Notice the rod of my anger. It's the rod of my anger. A rod speaks of punishment, of judgment. And the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation. Now, that nation in context is none other than his own people and that of the northern kingdom of Samaria that would fall to Assyria. God's chastening hand dealing very severely with the sins of his own people who have defied him and they have lived in rebellion against him and finally... <clears throat> The judgment of God is going to come upon them. And Assyria is the instrument that God is using to bring this about, as, as it's very clearly stated here. We saw this in the book of Naaman in chapter 1, verse 12. It says, although I have afflicted you, Judah, afflicted them through Assyria, I will afflict you no longer. So he had raised up Assyria and brought judgment in upon the, the northern kingdom. But he says to Judah, who, who survived that, that they will no longer afflict them. So he did use them against the northern kingdom and in many ways even in the southern kingdom of Judah as well. But he protected Jerusalem. He protected uh, the capital city there. 
they were the object of his, un, uh, his own wrath. They are referred to as an ungodly nation, and that is what they have become. And this is ir- almost ironic. Uh, the Hebrews considered the Assyrians to be profane and to be ungodly, godless, a god, ungodly nation. But here God uses that of them. And I think in Isaiah 1, he says that I, uh, uh, his people have become as Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, strong language that is used against them. Um, in verse 6, he says, I, I will send them against the ungodly nation, against the people of my wrath. Um, I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like mire of the streets. And again, we can go back to Deuteronomy 28 and 29, where God says, if you obey me, I will bless you. I will bless your fields. I will bless your wombs. I will bless your nation. But if you do not, I will bring curses upon you. And this is in light of this covenant that he had made with them at Mount Sinai. And here is this being carried out. And the instrument that God is using is the nation of Assyria at this point. Later, he will use the nation of Babylon. And when we get to the book of Habakkuk, we'll see that's what he's troubled about. God is using an ungodly nation like Babylon to do this. But here, we notice that Assyria, as they do all this, they are clueless. That a sovereign God is the one who is enabling them, we should say, or allowing them to do this. And so we notice in verse 7, yet he does not mean so. In other words, the king of Assyria, the Assyrian empire, does not mean to carry out the will of God. That's not their intention. We're not doing God's will. I mean, in their mind, they're not thinking they're doing God's will. What's driving them? Well, it's their own lust. It's their own sinful hearts. He does not mean so, nor does his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. And then he goes on to list some of these. Um, Verse 10, as my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, as I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not do also to Jerusalem and her idols? So he is intending to go beyond Samaria to take Jerusalem, and uh, yet God is going to preserve um, Jerusalem uh, from the Assyrian attacks. Verse 12, therefore shall, it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. Here is this proud, this arrogant, this sinful leader who is in it for himself. He he wants to plunder nations. He wants to make a great empire of which he will be the leader of it. He is driven by lust and pride and greed He has conquered nations like dominoes falling and his basically saying, who is able to stop me back in verse nine? 
Who is able to stop him? He's overcoming all these uh, cities and nations. Who's able to stop me is the attitude of this arrogant king. But God is going to intervene for regard, regarding to Jerusalem. But as we look at this, this is really pretty astounding for us as we think about this, that God uses wicked men to do his will to accomplish his purpose. They're not willing servants, but they are servants nonetheless, serving the purpose of a sovereign God. And so Assyria now is going to become the object of God's wrath. They, God is going to use Assyria to be the rod in his hand to bring judgment upon his own people, but then Assyria will become the object of God's own wrath, as we read in verse 12. The haughty looks, um, the bragging. This is the kingdom that I have made, just like Nebuchadnezzar. Um, He gloried in this great kingdom. Look what I have built by my own power, for my own glory. And such it was for these individuals. But how foolish. Notice verse 15. And many among them shall um, stumble. They shall fall and be broken and be snared and taken. And as we saw this morning with the nation of Assyria, the capital of Nineveh, It all came to nothing and came in history to be almost lost as far as even the the, uh, city itself. Um, Ritter Boss in his commentary said, what sinful folly it is when the instrument boasts itself against him who uses it. The illusion of the Assyrian as though he and not Yahweh guided history is is as absurd as the idea of a stick wielding the man instead of the man, the stick. And that's what we see in these verses um, here. He talks about, does an axe boast in what it does? No. Does a shovel boast in what it digs? No. It's, it's the, the person who uses the axe. It's the person who uses the shovel. Um, how ridiculous that would be. But judgment is coming upon them. It will be like a fire. It will be like a consuming fire and bringing this vast kingdom to nothing. And this is what happened in a really short period of time, as we saw this, mo- this morning. Ashurbanipal was a very power- powerful, influential king. But within 14 years after his death, the kingdom came to nothing. It was destroyed. Nineveh was destroyed by a coalition of nations. But there is the promise that God will have a remnant. No matter how bad things look, um, he has a saving purpose. And as Isaiah 1.9 says, unless the Lord of hosts left us a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. So amidst all the chaos... God is at work. He has a saving purpose. We didn't look at some of the verses in Nahum, but there are verses where God says that this nation will come to naught, but Judah will worship. They will worship their God, and uh, God will provide for them, and he will restore them. He will bring back a remnant. And uh, Micah 7, 7 says, As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And so it was in the book of Naaman. God is good, 
and to all that take refuge in him, um, he is good to them, and they find uh, a place of rest and comfort. And so here, as we look at the scene with regard to Judah and Israel in the north at this particular time, and what God is using Assyria to do, that, again, God is accomplishing his greater purpose. Would have been hard to see by the people of that day, but the prophets were pointing them to that. God is in control. God is at work. Um, They needed to repent of their sins. But here's a lesson, I think, for us. Who is in control? Aren't you thankful to know that our God is sovereign, that he rules above over the kingdoms of this world, and God's sovereignty is over all his works, and it even includes somehow in ways that I don't think we can fully comprehend, even the wicked acts of men are used of God to accomplish his purpose. They are accountable for what they do, but yet they are accomplishing unknowingly to them um, the purpose of God so often. Even the wrath of men shall praise thee. Now think about Joseph. You remember what Joseph said after all the things that he endured by his brothers, all the troubles that he went through, and yet at the end of, his, uh, at the, end of the, the famine and as his brothers had come down to Egypt to find bread, as he, as he reveals himself to them, they are fearful. He tells them not to be fearful, and he says, what you meant for evil. God meant for good, didn't he? And they did mean it for evil. They meant it for evil. They were jealous of their brother. They hated their brother. They sold him into slavery. But what you meant for evil, God, in an amazing way, used this to save many people alive. He saved the family of of Jacob. And so, again, we see the sovereignty of God in, in this. And then some verses I think we're all familiar with, but I'd like to just read these in Acts 2 and Acts 4. The greatest injustice in all of history was the putting to death of the very Son of God. Peter, as he speaks there at Pentecost, says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and you have crucified and put him to death, whom God has raised up. This was the determined purpose of God. The wicked acts of those both of the Jews and of the Gentiles, as Jesus is put to death, was the predetermined purpose and the plan of God. In Acts 4, Peter and John are told not to preach, but they're released, and here is this prayer that they prayed. Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Listen to this. They were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined beforehand to be done. What an amazing, amazing statement. They didn't mean that. They weren't seeking to accomplish the will of God. But God even used the wrath of men to bring praise to him to accomplish his purpose. God's will is carried out by sinful, wicked men who are responsible. Joseph's brothers were responsible. These men were responsible for what they did. Now, I don't understand how that all works together. There is mystery, no doubt, in this. But God is sovereign, and he is accomplishing his purpose. I love Psalm 115. Why do the people say, where is your God? Well, here's their, the response of the believing remnant. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And as we come to understand this, this becomes a place of rest, rest for us, a place of refuge um, as we look at the world around us and things that can often trouble us. This is a place where we find solace and comfort and know that God is sovereign. God is in control and we can trust him. And that gets down to the very details of our own life, doesn't it? Where we live. It may not be kings that we're dealing with, but just trials and difficulties in our own life. That God is at work even in these things and he's working all things together for good to those that love him and have been called according to his purpose. And so may God help us um, as Isaiah reveals to us the incomparable greatness of our God. The nations are, they're just like a drop in a bucket. They're like, the men are like grasshoppers. Our God is enthroned above. He is sovereign. And even when these men act, and they, they act against the Lord and his anointed, what does Psalm 2 tell us? What is God's response when they oppose his anointed? What does the God of heaven do? He laughs. It's amazing, isn't it? He laughs. His purpose will be accomplished. Jesus Christ will rule and reign forever. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. May God increase our faith. May he increase our trust, our confidence in him. And how blessed are those who take refuge in him. Well, let's stand and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer.